church if anybody would like to learn that routine. Uh, thank you to all of our VBS workers. We really did have a great week. The kids really enjoyed their time here together. It was a lot of fun uh, watching them jump around and games and crafts and everything else, but also learning about the scriptures, learning the stories of the Bible, learning to put their faith and trust in what God says, not in what man says. Um, so that's a great start and a great beginning for them. Um, one quick announcement that I wanted to bring to your attention. Um, if you got our weekly email this past week, you saw that it was not from BJ, who we said goodbye to last week, but actually it's from Danielle. Danielle's been with us for about a month, and she has been uh, getting up to speed on all of the communication information and stuff. And so if you see her around, make sure you thank her uh, for her. She's actually back there. She can give a little wave if y'all see Danielle. And just uh, thank her for um, jumping on board and helping keep us organized because that's a really key position um, here at our church. So we're excited to have her with us. Um, our text for today comes from the Gospel of Luke. Um, as we've been doing the series, uh, and we're actually wrapping up the series today, looking at Isaiah in the New Testament. And so there's an occasion here where Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and so that's the text I want to look at today. I want to give you just a little bit of background about what he's going to read, or what he's going to share. Um, Isaiah chapter, he's reading a passage from Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 is the begins, the final section, the closing chapters of the book of Isaiah, starts in chapter 61, runs through the end in chapter 66. And in these chapters, a whole bunch of stuff Isaiah is talking about deal with the Messiah. They deal with this messianic, messianic age, this kind of uh, period at which uh, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to restore and renew and refresh the earth and the peoples of the earth and give us a different experience of what it's like to be here and living amongst and, and being able to interact with one another. And so the beginning of that section of scripture is, um, is Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. I just want to read those verses to you real quickly and then we'll get to what Jesus had to say about it. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. The beginning, this messianic section, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus stops right there with his quotation. Some of what the, that's some of what the Messiah has to say about himself. So even though Isaiah writes here in the first person, um, he's not writing as, as though it's him speaking. He's writing as though it's this Messiah who is speaking. And so that kind of creates a program or, or a ministry uh, of what the Messiah is going to do. Now flip forward 750 years to the time of the Lord Jesus, um, and we find him in church on a Sabbath on a, at the synagogue. And uh, he shares um, some brief commentary. He reads these verses from Isaiah and then shares a little brief commentary um, and that forms our text for today. It comes from Luke chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 16 through 21. Again, this is Jesus at his home church, and he's going to quote some stuff here from Isaiah. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. Here we go. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so that's our text. What I'd like to do is to dig into those final chapters, those closing chapters of Isaiah, starting with chapter 61, working through 66, and then come back to what Jesus quotes here. And I think that'll give us a little better appreciation of what exactly it is, the monumental statement that he's making here as he reads those verses. So let's jump back to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. We'll take a look at those verses in particular first. Um, this is where the Messiah is speaking. And he says, 61 and verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Again, let's stop right there. This is the Messiah claiming that the Holy Spirit of God, remember Isaiah is writing this in the first person, but he's writing it as though the Messiah is speaking, right? Not, he's not, this is not Isaiah talking himself here. He says that he's, and so he's saying is the Messiah is, sorry, I need to slow down. I know I need to slow down. I like talking fast, but anyway, uh, the Messiah is claiming that the Holy Spirit of God has inhabited his being, not just that he is God, that he has God's favor, but that he literally has the spirit of the living God residing inside of him. We go back to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3 and verse 21 gives us the account of Jesus' baptism. And here's what happens at Jesus' baptism. It says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Friends, the heavens do not open up all that often in biblical history. I think back to a few times when the heavens actually opened up, when the heavens opened up to the earth. One of those occasions was when Elijah, uh, the chariots came down and and, uh, scooped him up and took him on up into heaven. That was one of the occasions where the heavens opened up. Another occasion where the heavens opened up is when um, Jacob sees this ladder that's extending from the earth up into the heavens. And you see the angels descending and ascending back and forth between heaven and earth. That's one of the times when the heavens opened up. I think of the stoning of Stephen uh, when, he's about right, when he's being stoned to death and he looks up and he says, the scriptures say he sees the heavens open. He sees Jesus standing up to receive him up into heaven. Those are occasions, there's only a few of them, where the heavens opened up to the earth. Other times we have biblical characters who peer into heaven, right? They poke their head up to the clouds and they see some of what's going on up there, but where the heavens actually open up to the earth. This is one of those occasions. Rarely do those things happen, but at the baptism of Jesus, it happened. It says in verse 21 that the heavens were opened, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit of God descended on the Lord Jesus. Isaiah prays later uh, in his closing chapter, or in these closing chapters, Isaiah 64 and verse 1, he says, O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, prayer answered right? Amen. And that wonderful God came to earth in the person of the Lord Jesus and the baptism of the Lord Jesus, the heavens opened and the spirit of the living God descended from heaven and inhabited the body of Jesus Christ. Back to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. He says, the spirit of the Messiah speaking, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Why? For what purpose? I mean, what was, why, why did he anoint you? What was the point of all of that. He says, number one, to bring good news to the poor. And by poor, we don't just mean people who are impoverished physically, who don't have a lack of funds, but rather it's also a poverty of spirit that he's referring to here. Number two, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Some translations say to give sight 
to the blind. This could be physical blindness or this could be spiritual blindness. Number three, his program is to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Friends, Jesus did all of these things. He Past tense, he did all of these things. This was his program of ministry. This is what Messiah declared back in Isaiah chapter 61 he was going to do, and Jesus did all of these things. Jesus brought liberation to the life that was imprisoned by sin. He brought sight to the blind, both physically as well as spiritual blindness. He preached good news to the poor, and he brought joy and hope to the brokenhearted. These were the expectations that the Jewish people had from reading Isaiah chapter 61 about what the Messiah would do, and Jesus did all of these things. Flip forward to verse 8. The Messiah is still speaking here, and he says, well, let me pause there for just a second, because if there's some, some Bible scholar out there who's going to listen to this on the, online or something, they're like, oh, I don't know about that. That was really the Messiah speaking. Somebody say, well, it was actually the Lord speaking, because it says, for I the Lord. But if you look at this text and you read through this text, there's no break in, in the structure of the text. It's like the Messiah is talking in verses 1 through 3. He's talking in verses 4 through 6, and now all of a sudden he keeps talking here in verse 8. And so it says, for I the Lord love justice. Again, I find it interesting that the Messiah calls himself the Lord. The word that's used here in the Hebrew is the word Jehovah. It's one of the words that's exclusively used for God in the Hebrew language. So the Messiah says, I, the Lord, is calling himself God. How about that? Fast forward to the gospel writer of John. John opens his gospel with these words about Jesus, affirming who he knows Jesus to be. John writes, John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word Jesus was God. So John affirms who Jesus is. This is not just some ordinary man in the flesh who's really smart, who has a really big heart. This is actually God inhabiting human flesh. That's who we're talking about. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul writes about Jesus, that he is the visible image of the invisible God. And then in verse 19, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. How about them apples? So going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 61, here's the, here is the Messiah saying, hey, by the way, when I arrive, I'm actually going to be God. I'm going to be God in the flesh. And the Bible affirms this over and over again, the New Testament writers, that that's who Jesus is. When we arrive at Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah offers up prayers asking God to restore what will be a nation in exile. Remember, this is written in the context of Isaiah talking about the messianic age, the messianic program. And he's praying, therefore, for God to bring about renewal, for God to restore his people during this messianic era. So these are prayers in these closing chapters that Isaiah is making of, please, God, accomplish these things through your Messiah. One of the things he asks for, middle of verse 11, is where he, it says, he quotes here, where, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Referring there to the deliverance of God's people through the Red Sea after, um, and their exodus from Egypt. Still in verse 11, or where is he, referring to God, who put in the midst of his people his Holy Spirit? He's referring there to how when God came and dwelt in the midst of his people, that pillar of fire by day, that, or pillar of fire by night and that pillar of cloud by day, and how the Holy Spirit was there and was guiding God's people through uh, the wilderness. Isaiah, the prophet of God, is petitioning God to bring back those kind of days. God, where you walked intimately. God, where you walked closely amongst your people where you were right there. We could interact with you. We knew you were 
and by proximity right there close by. When we arrive about midway through chapter 65, Isaiah begins to talk about new heavens and a new earth. He writes Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. He says on this new earth, he describes some of what's going to be like, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Wolves and lambs don't get together very well, or don't, don't get along really well, do they? And that the lion, instead of eating the ox, will actually eat straw like the ox eats straw. So they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. As I was reading through this text and just doing some studies this past week, it became eerily reminiscent of what Peter had to say in one of his epistles, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. Peter says, he's talking about this new age or the new earth and the new heavens. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Flipping back to Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17, you'll notice that Isaiah says that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. The word that is used there, create, is the word bara. And it appears back in Genesis chapter 1, and it's an activity that only God can do. It's where God creates out of nothing, ex nihilo. And so he's saying, hey, look, this is what God is going to do. He's going to create out of nothing something completely new and refreshed. Again, all of these descriptions depict the coming kingdom of God and the coming messianic age. Finally, at the end of chapter 66, remember we're just doing an overview here of these chapters, we learn that God is going to send word about all of these changes to the nations of the earth. Isaiah writes chapter 66 and verse 18, And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. End of verse 19. To the coast, he lists off a bunch of different places. Those are capital cities of some of the nations around them. To the coastlands far away that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. All right, let's sum up. These closing chapters of Isaiah describe a time in human history when God will anoint his chosen servant and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, this anointed servant will not only bring social change, but will bring change to the very structure of creation itself. He will inaugurate a change even in the animal kingdom where lions lay down with oxen, a time when the nations of the earth will come to worship God, not just the Israelites, but everyone else as well. All right, let's jump back to Luke chapter 4. We've got kind of a little background here. We see this messianic stuff being described here in Isaiah 61 through 66. And then Jesus brings up this reads from this particular section of Isaiah, um, Luke chapter 4. Um, he goes to his home church, to his synagogue, um, and he says there, verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he's going to a worship service at his home church. And it says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And here's what he read, verse 17, and the scroll, I'm sorry, and the, well, then he reads it. It says, and then the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Um, I, real quickly, I just want to show you this. I think I shared this a couple weeks ago. The, the slide for our home slide for our uh, Isaiah series. 
you can see there the Isaiah scroll. This was the scroll that was found uh, back in, the, I think it was the 1940s, in the Qum, near Qumran, in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. It's considered by archaeologists to be one of the greatest archaeological finds of all times. It was all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, complete. I think there was two copies of it. Um, and this is one of those scrolls on display at a museum in Israel. Um, just kind of further confirms that the Bible that we have, that Jesus trusted in, is a trustworthy text. There are, it connects to even before the times of Christ. So Jesus was given one of these Isaiah scrolls that his local church possessed. Verse 17 says, And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this messianic figure and his messianic age are described. And he read the opening lines of that section where the Messiah himself speaks in the first person. Remember, Isaiah's talking in the first person, but he's not Isaiah talking. He's saying, I'm, this is the Messiah talking to you here. Verse 18, and the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me. Now, I, I don't know at first if anybody picked up on that Jesus was talking about himself, right? Maybe they just thought, well, he's just reading from Isaiah. It's written in the first person, and he's the one reading it. I don't know that he's really talking about himself, uh, but so he's just reading along the text. But what it but it's what he says afterwards, after he closes up the scroll, that makes such a profound occasion. Luke reports, verse 20, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. When a rabbi sits down, they're getting ready to teach. And we see the same thing in our universities today. You have different colleges within the university, and the person who oversees each college is called the department chair. And the reason why we call them the department chair, it, dates, it goes back to this stuff, this concept of when you teach, you sit down. And so that's where we get some of that stuff from. So Jesus sits down, and he's going to give some commentary on this messianic passage from Isaiah. It says, verse 20, And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. Remember, this is Jesus' home church. That means Farmer John was there, right? He was there with his family. Uh, they were sitting over on one side of the church or out maybe toward the back of the church. Maybe they were sitting up front. His mom, Mary, would have been there. His brothers, Jude and James, were probably both sitting there. I mean, Jesus is back home and has been off studying, becoming a rabbi. Now he's back home. He's going to teach in his home church. And so people come out to want to support him. Um, his third grade teacher, Mrs. Baker, she was there. Her kids were grown now. A few of them had moved off, but some of them still lived in the area and they were raising their family. So Mrs. Baker's grandkids were there as well. The people of the town where Jesus grew up, the people that knew him, the people that went to school with him, the teachers that had taught him, the, the local farmers, the local artisans who had employed Jesus for a summer job, these folks were there. There's only one church in town. And uh, so Jesus knows all these people and they know him. Um, they heard that he was now a rabbi. He was coming back through. So they wanted, and this is like his homecoming message, right? So they invite him back for homecoming. So he gives the homecoming message on homecoming Sunday. And so the folks come out to support him, to hear him. I mean, after all, he had always said wise things. <laughs> he was really good at quoting scripture. So, hey, well, let's go hear what Jesus has to say. Um, verse 21, and he began to say to them, today which there's really no wiggle room in that word. He didn't say tomorrow. He didn't say in some indeterminate amount of time. He said today. Today means in the present, right? This is happening right now. He said today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, Jesus just claimed to be the Messiah right there in front of his home church. 
Jesus just claimed to be the fulfillment of the centuries-old prophecy of Isaiah and that the Jewish people had been looking for, had been anticipating, had been praying for this moment for 750-some-odd years. And he does this at his home church. Now, at first, folks humor him. <laughs> like, ah, okay, that's interesting that you would say something like that. And they were amazed, it says. They marveled at what he had to say. But then they begin to think, wasn't he Joseph's son? I mean, Joseph wasn't the sharpest pencil, you know. And, and wasn't there, like, some stuff in his past about how he, you know, came about and that was a little bit, you know, sketchy? Um, and then Jesus said, so there's just kind of some of that that goes on in the aftermath of them. Like, whoa, that's a pretty amazing statement. And then Jesus responds to them by saying, and I'll paraphrase here, I know what y'all are thinking. You're thinking, prove it to us. And so he makes a couple statements about that. He says, well, even if, even if a prophet um, was, was, to, was to show up among you that was from you, I mean, everywhere else in Israel's past, whenever a prophet went to their hometown, they were never welcome there either. So he's starting to kind of call this out, call the doubters out. And when you dig into the Old Testament stories, he's thinking to himself, well, rarely did the Jewish people, those stiff-necked people, ever receive God's revelation. In fact, God has to go outside of Israel. He has to go find some Gentiles if he wants to find somebody that's actually going to believe in what he just told them. And by this point, people are getting really irate. And so it says in the Scriptures, verse 29, I don't think we have that one, right? they usher him out of town, they grab a hold of him. And, I mean, think about this. Don't ever do this to me, please. Um, they grab him from off the pulpit, and they drag him out of the church, and they go find a cliff that's, I guess there's some cliffs close by, and they're going to throw him off the cliff. And it says in verse 30 um, that, they, uh, that he, he passes through their midst, and Jesus went away. I mean, even Mrs. Baker, the third grade teacher, was part of this. She got all upset. Um, so, but he escaped. One last thought, then we'll get on to our most important question. Luke includes this story, this episode, in the life of Jesus. Right? There's so many things that could have been told. This is something that Luke selected and wanted to make sure that you and I knew. Um, this story, this episode in the life of Jesus, here at the beginning of his public ministry, thematically establishes that Jesus is... What, when people realize who he's really claiming to be, what kind of a reaction you can expect. Um, and, and you see this consistent. Through, we love you to heal us, right? Make some more bread. We love all that stuff. But when you start going beyond just moral teaching, when you start claiming that you're the way to God, uh, you get people looking for a cliff. And so Luke establishes that here at the front end. All right, well, that is our text for today, and so that means it's time for us to start. I was just thinking last week I was done about this time. <laughs> Not today. Um, so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, great question. Let's see if we can talk about that. Without question, Jesus knew that he was the Messiah. Without question, Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of, us, of Isaiah's words and predictions. Luke later reports in his gospel the confession of the apostle Peter, Luke chapter 9, and verse 20. Then Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Like, you told me what other people th think I am. They think I'm like Elijah come back. They think I'm you know, some other prophet. They think I'm a, a good man. Uh, but who do you all think that I am? And uh, Peter answered, the Christ of God. The word Christ in Greek is the word Christos. It's a translation from Hebrew, the word Messiah. 
same word. Verse 21. And I had on my notes this morning, the beginning of my sermon, for us to pray for what we're hearing right now. Babies too, but <laughs> praying for rain. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord just keep bringing it, Lord. Please bless you. Um, and so uh, verse 21, and Jesus then strictly charged them, commanded them to tell this to no one else. He didn't deny Peter's confession. He just said it's not time for us to get that out there. Because you know what happens when we tell people they start looking for a cliff. And it's not time for me to be killed yet. Here's my point. The history books predict that a Messiah will come. And that's not debated. The world looks at Isaiah and says, you know what? Being completely objective, yeah, Isaiah was talking about a Messiah. He was predicting this Messiah was going to come, and he kind of outlines the program of his ministry. I, I, I see that. It's right, right there on the pages. We've got 66 chapters that confirm this from predating Jesus and all this sort of stuff. The world will agree with that. Um, but what the world won't concede is that Jesus is Messiah. They'll agree that he's a moral teacher. They'll agree that perhaps even that he healed some people. They'll agree that he was a very wise man who tried to help people get along in a tough, tough world. But the world doesn't want to admit that he's anything more than that. As long as Jesus is just a moral teacher, then the world can accept him. As long as he's just a nice guy who had some wise things to say, you know, went off to rabbinic school, came back, had a nice homecoming message, as long as that's all that he is, hostilities are abated. But friends, when you and I, like Jesus did, press the point that Jesus is more than a moral teacher, but that he is the one and only way to heaven. I don't know about that. Folks start looking for a cliff to throw us off of. So what difference does this make to your life and to mine? Number one, it means that we have a choice. Either we can appease the world and let them have a muted, toothless version of Jesus, where everybody goes to heaven, and Jesus' life was really without consequence. He's just a nice guy, again, trying to help us get along in a tough world. Or we can lovingly but firmly insist that Jesus is Messiah and that salvation is found in no one else. Those are our two choices. We can let the world have their version, just say, you know what, I'll just, I'll just, I won't press the point. Or we can say, you know what, this is who Jesus claimed to be. This is who I know him to be. That's a choice that we all have to make. I know Isaiah said who he would be. I know that Luke's reporting who Jesus, who he believed Jesus to be. I know who Jesus himself said he was. You know, he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But am I willing to tell the world this is what I believe. We confess him in here, right? the good confession of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior. But are we willing to say the same out those doors? Here's what I want you to do this week. I want for each of us to tell somebody, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And when I say tell someone that you're Christian, I don't mean ask someone if you can pray with them. I mean, that's a good thing to do, but we're saying something even more than that. And what I don't mean by saying tell somebody that you're a Christian is buy you know, the guy behind you in the drive through line lunch, right? That's a great thing to do, but that's not what we're talking about here. 
I mean getting out of our comfort zone and actually telling somebody, I am a Christian. Here's how you might shape that conversation. I got two suggestions for you. Have I ever told you how I became a Christian? Just a way to open up that conversation. Or have I ever told you why I became a Christian? This is your story. You can spit it out in 60 seconds, maybe a couple of minutes, maybe longer. Not talking to them about church, not talking to them about theology, not trying to explain the Bible to them, just recounting the story of when or why or what was happening in your life when you decided to follow Jesus. One of the classes that I teach at Point University, teaching it right now, is a class on evangelism. And one of the conversations that came up was strategies to try and reach non-believing, unchurched people. And so we talked a lot in that class, and one of the students' uh, responses this past week kind of caught my attention, and we did a little bit of back and forth just trying to reflect on and think about best methodology. And uh, he wanted to get to know some unchurched and non-believing people and just kind of become a part of their life sort of incognito. Um, Just participating in life, being a part of their life, they kind of accept him and realize that he's a good guy, earn their trust, and then just bring it on. The problem with that is we're lying to people. The problem with that methodology of evangelism is we're presenting ourselves one way, but then really pulling the rug out from under folks somewhere down the line. I prefer, I think it's a more honest approach to tell people what you believe up front. Say, this is who I am. I'm going to love you. You love me. And maybe if you want to learn more about this God that I serve, I'd be happy to share him with you. But I serve him. Um, Let me give an example of how this might go. Um, I was riding down the road with my painter this past week. Had some projects going on. I said, hey, Jose, I need you to come and do some painting for me. So I went and picked him up. I was kind of his ride this week. Jeep hadn't been working too good. So I went and picked him up. And we're running down up up and down the road. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I get this conversation going? Right? How, where, where, do we, where do we start this? Because I wanted to. I, I, we know one another for a while. He's been out here painting a bunch of stuff at the church, painted the gym recently, inside. We're going to do outside sometime later. And uh, so anyhow, here's, here is how that conversation can go. This is not what I did that day. I had some time to reflect. <laughs> next week, right? There's next week. When I was eight years old, Jose, I remember going to church one night. And they showed this video at church, and it was about Jesus coming back to the earth and people getting swept away. And I got really scared that I wasn't going to get to go where, you know, the good people uh, were going to go. And so where the people had, had put their faith and trust in Jesus were going to go. And so um, I said on the, on the ride home, I was, I was really tore up about this. I was only eight. My dad noticed something was wrong, and uh, he turned to me. He said, Gordy, <laughs> right, you don't call me that. My dad calls me back. I said, Gordy, uh, what's wrong? What's going on? I said, Dad, I'm scared that I'm not going to go to heaven. And so when we got home. We went to my room. We knelt down at my bedside. And my dad led me in a prayer to receive Jesus into my life. I asked him to forgive me of my sins. I asked him to be my Lord and my Savior. And in that moment, eight years of age, my eternal state, my eternal where I was going to go, changed on a dime. How long did that take me? I probably embellished a little bit, so a couple minutes maybe. Um, So I'm asking you, this week, not 
next week, not maybe sometime this summer, this week, to find somebody and say, have I ever told you about the time when I became a Christian? It's your story. You say, Gordon, I got one question for you. I don't remember that moment. I, I, I don't. I, I was probably really young or too young, and I just don't. I know that I believe, and that's what matters. That is what matters. But I don't have that eight years old kneeling at my bedside with my dad kind of a moment in my, in my memory bank. But again, I know that I believe, and that's what matters. So I got a separate, a different, a different question for you. You might want to just do this one anyway. And here's that one. Have I told you about what Jesus has done in my life recently? I shared a couple of weeks about what was going on in our family. I mean, that might be something my wife wants to share with somebody. Hey, look, God has been working in our family. And can I just tell you about what he's been doing? So a couple of different ways that we can go about this. But this week, that's your homework. Tell somebody. Have I ever told you how or why I became a Christian? Have I told you recently what God's been doing in my life? I'd love to share that with you. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, this is, this is scary stuff. This is heart-pounding, sweaty palms, nervous kind of stuff. But it's what you called us to. It's what you called us to do. Evangelism doesn't have to be, Lord, us quoting scripture or explaining the finer points of theology. It's just you and us and our relationship that has been established. Lord, give us insight. Give us boldness where we need it. Give us humility to be able to share this story in loving ways but, Lord, may we share it. Thank you for this table today. It reminds us of your broken body and of your shed blood. What a high cost, Lord Jesus, you were willing to pay. May we, Lord, take this good news and bring it to a world that is desperately in need. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.